This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. When you and I were kids, we were taught ethics, the difference between right and wrong. But as adults, ethical questions we wrestle with are much more complicated. Bear with me. If my son and my nephew go for a swim and they get caught up in a riptide, my nephew's a terrible swimmer, my son is a very strong swimmer, I'm certain I can rescue one, but I'm not sure I can rescue both. Do I rescue my son knowing I will certainly doom my nephew, or do I rescue my nephew and hope my son can hang on until I get there? That's not even a particularly difficult problem to work through in the school of ethics. What happens then when we push it to the next level and we bring in technology? What are the ethical implications of emerging tech like genetic engineering, nanotech, and my personal favorite, artificial intelligence? How do we impart ethics into machines that are acting on behalf of humans but without any human agency? My guest this week is Dr. Paul Root Wolpe of Emory University. He's a Raymond F. Shinazi Distinguished Research Chair in Jewish Bioethics. He's a professor in the departments of medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, neuroscience and biological behavior, and sociology, and the director for the Center of Ethics. Dr. Wolpe spent 15 years as a senior bioethicist for NASA, and he's the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Bioethics Neuroscience, and he sits on the editorial boards of more than a dozen professional journals in medicine and ethics. It is a fascinating, sometimes harrowing conversation, so please enjoy it on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. All right, here we go. Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, thank you for coming into the QTS Experience. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm going to do my very best not to be over-enthusiastic, <laughs> but I'm very enthusiastic that you're here today. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Um, so there's so many places we could start the conversation. Um, as my audience has heard by the intro, you are a man of a great deal of experience. Um, I want to start with this question, if you don't mind. When, as a scientist, for lack of a better way of describing it, in the area of ethics, what does that mean? So ethics is a strange kind of field. It grew out of philosophy. The term ethics uh, comes from Greek philosophy. Um, before that, there was no ethics. People don't quite get that. <laughs> okay. So believe it or not, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have ethics because ethics is when you separate right and wrong from other kinds of obligations. And to the Bible, all obligations are equal, whether it's my responsibility to you or my responsibility to God or my responsibility to not eat animals right. that are forbidden, whatever it is. Right. It's all thrown into one category. Right. The Greeks basically pulled out the category of people's moral obligations to each other and called it ethics and separated it out. And ever since then, people have tried to figure out how do you live the good life? How do you behave properly? And there are a whole series of theories. When you take sort of philo philosophical ethics 101, you learn about consequentialism. It's the consequence of your actions. Deontology, it's rules. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, there's virtue ethics, uh, be a good person, 
uh, cultivate virtues and then you will make proper decisions. Mm. And then other theories come in later, feminism with what's called caring ethics, where they say it's really about relationships and not rules. So people have tried for centuries to find out how do you behave properly towards one another. And so ethics consists of a few different basic concepts. First is values. Ethics is always about values. So when I give cases to medical students and other students and I say tease out the ethical issues and they can't because they often can't, they get legal and ethical and moral and social and other issues, clinical, because I teach medical students all wrapped up together, I say, what are the values at play here? So that's one. The second is it's always about relationships. Mm. I give this uh, experiment to my kids. I said, you your boat sunk at sea, you crawl up on a rock, there's no living thing on the rock, you're waiting to be rescued. Can you do something unethical in the middle of the ocean sitting on a rock? Mm. And it's a tough one to answer because I've taken away all relationships, and that's what I want them to realize when they try to figure out what could I do. Right. And usually the only thing they can figure out is doing something to themselves. Because right. So it's about values. It's about values and relationship. And then it's about, and this is where I think the great insight comes in that differs from what most people think ethics is. Um, as you know, I talk a lot about this. Most people think ethics is about right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And ethics is rarely about right and wrong as adults. It's often about right and wrong in kindergarten. You know, don't right. hit people, don't steal things. That. Right. But once you got that down, then the questions of ethics are about values and conflict. So I've got two values that I want to honor and I can't honor them both. Should a society be about individual liberty or community responsibility? Well, sometimes those two things conflict. Mm -hmm. And the ethical question is, which are we going to value more? Mm -hmm. And the difference between societies is often which they choose in which situation. Mm -hmm. And that's why ethics can differ, mm -hmm. which is different than saying that ethics is relative, which lots of people like to say, or mm -hmm. ethics is arbitrary. It's not. It's mm -hmm. built into systems around how they weight values. Mm. And that's, I think, the key lesson about ethics. The conversations we have that we don't always realize we're having is how I weight different ethic, different values in conflict versus how you weight different values in conflict. Mm. And then we can actually have a discussion when we get to that point. Why do you think the Greeks pulled that out? Um, you know, I've read the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. I've read the... Uh, Christian Bible. I've read a little bit of the Quran. I've, uh, I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't consider myself in any of these things. I've read them, uh, or at least portions of them, and casually been curious about different epics or eras of history, the yeah. Egyptians and others. Why do you think it was the Greek philosophers that really began? Did they think it would be benefit to human flourishing? Because when I think of the uh, I just happened to have finished reading. I had a one-year Bible program. I never did that before. Uh -huh. Not to go too much down the Bible, but I was curious. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, um, a lot of the cool, sexy, big, epic stuff, sort of the 1950s movie stuff of Genesis and mm -hmm. others, were these, um, it wasn't just how, like this tribe would treat that tribe, although it's pretty interesting how sometimes we don't treat ourselves very good, but also how you're supposed to treat those that are um, vulnerable amongst you, the right. sojourners, they call them coming and going and all this other stuff. Why do you think it was the Greeks that um, separated that out and, and teased it out as opposed to the Hittites or choose another yeah. group? Because the Greeks were dedicated to logic. 
Mm. If you look at Aristotle, I mean, these are logical systems. They wanted to, to take off. I mean, if you look at the traditions, we're given scripture, which is supposed to be God's word, and then we take the next step. Right. The Greeks wanted to get rid of any, you know, first level dictates right. and right. start from basic human logic and build a system. Okay. So when you take that away, um, a lot of the kinds of sort of emotional, uh, communal stuff that that religions teach us was not what they were interested. In. Right. How do you build a system of logic that would tell you rationally? Not because God tells you to, but right. rationally how to do the right thing. Right. And when you look at ethics rationally, then you have to begin to build systems of thought about it. And that's why um, as they began to build those, uh, they began to come up with um, really a methodology of how you are to be an ethical person. And what's happened ever since is in a pluralistic world where there are different religions that teach different things, can we agree on some um, way to have common ethical goals based less on given word than on the human capacity to think things through in a logical and systematic way. Mm. It's, uh, you know, you and I both know reading through those books and many other books, we, just because we quote unquote got a word on high does not mean we had it's like Ron White, the comedian, said, I knew my right to remain silent. I just had no ability <laughs> to maintain it. Right. Um and so whether but, it's uh you know uh, uh a logical argument by the Greeks or uh you know a supernatural decree of this is this is the right way to behave, mm -hmm. I find myself many times uh violating my own principles in my head. I, yeah, we I mean bec and, and it's Part of the reason is because they're always competing principles. Mm. But th there are two reasons. One is, let's take, let's get as simple as you can get. Ten commandments, one of the commandments is, thou shalt not murder. Right. That's, I don't know what, four words in English? It's only two words in the original Hebrew. Right. Two word. I mean, you can't get simpler than right. that. Right. Don't murder. Right. That's what it says. Right. Go to your local law library. Yeah. And look at how many books there are on what that means, okay. how to think about it, how to interpret it, what is murder, what isn't murder, right. is intention important, is what about self-defense, how I mean, simple ethical principles are never simple. Yeah. Because in the real messy world that we live in, there are all kinds of complications, and those complications can be over definition, they can be over motivation, they can be over competing values, right? I mean, we think of someone who murders because they were deeply wronged differently than someone who murders out of greed. Right. Right. So even there, you know, why we do things. So um, part of what makes ethics interesting to someone like me, if it really was don't murder and we all agreed and we all did it, there wouldn't be a need for an ethics. It's because all of these decisions end up being deeply complicated and deeply um, conflicted. Right. Uh, when the Greeks began rolling this out, did the world embrace it, or did they think they were crazy? A little bit of both. Um, <laughs> you know, no, the Western world has always admired the Greeks. I mean, you can't read Aristotle. You can't read, um, you know, the the great Greek minds. You can't read Socratic, right? And not and think these people were anything but brilliant. They were. Right. You may not agree with that as the best system right. to do that, but. 
there's incredible wisdom there. Right. Um, it's like Confucius. You can't read Confucius even if you don't accept Confucian ideas. Right. And not to say this was a brilliant thinker and and you know system. So, but I mean, what does it mean? All of Western civilization is based in to some degree sure. on Greek thought. So it's part of our DNA. I mean, um, our legal systems, our our political systems started in many ways with Greek thought or at least incorporated them into existing uh, systems. So yeah, that's as, that's as close as the West gets to a Bible that's not the Bible. Right. <laughs> Why, uh, it, before you came on the show, of course, yeah. I, was, um, I was enamored of so many of the things that you've talked about, and we'll have links to um, a number of ones that I think are really relevant, not just to the idea of ethics, but some mm-hmm. of the topics we're gonna talk about today as we move into technology and bioengineering um, one of the few people I've heard, uh, I cannot wait to share this podcast with my brother whose email account has the word singularity in it that, mm-hmm. um, you weren't as enamored, um, at least once upon a time when you made yeah. the recording of the idea of the, of the singularity and that it's, a, a you know, an inevitable sort of logical conclusion. Maybe we get a chance to talk on that. Yeah. But, um, uh, why does NASA need a, which is in your background, need an ethicist? I'm curious. Yeah, so that's that's an, an interesting story. Um, so I was not, I was as interested in space and in NASA as anybody my age. I remember the moon landing in 69. Sure. I remember where I was with my family. So all of us as of my generation, I'm a boomer, um, we've, all, we've always been interested in space, but I wasn't sort of a NASA geek. Right. And so when I got the call saying that head, uh, NASA headquarters in Washington needed an, an ethicist, I was in Philadelphia, so it was a short train ride for me from someone who had done some ethics consultation. He was from Houston, and he did ethics consultation with the Johnson Space Center. And the guy he was with said they really need someone up in Washington. So he called me, and he said, I think you can help, because I was working at that time on research ethics, and that's what they needed help with. So when I got there, what they needed me for initially was um, their research ethics system had just been neglected and had kind of, you know, uh, disappeared in any systematic way. There were 12 NASA uh, research stations. Some of them had institutional review boards. Some of them didn't. Nobody knew who did and didn't. so they needed someone to clean up their research ethics What does that uh, system. mean? What does research ethics mean? So if NASA wants to understand bone loss, I mean, a very big issue of astronauts in space is they have bone loss right. and muscle loss. So they do experiments up in space, and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. But they do a lot of, they fund experiments on Earth around bone loss, around muscle loss, around dizziness, because that's another issue is vestibular problems in space, or at least when you come back to Earth. Mm -hmm. So they look for analogs in research here, and then they fund them or they commission them. Mm. So if I'm going to do a study on bone loss, I need to recruit a whole bunch of people to study. Those are human subjects. There are regulations about about informed consent, about harm, about their... um, uh, ability to withdraw at any time without penalty. There are all of these rules Mm -hmm. around human subjects research. That's research ethics in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. There's issues about fairness and recruitment. 
you know, language uh, is your informed consent force translated into the language that the people you're recruiting actually speak so they'll understand it? Are you recruiting, you know, whites, blacks, women, men? What eight, what are your ages? You know, is it okay to do this with, with people under 18? Is it okay to do this with people over 65? Are you paying them? Right. Are you paying them enough to coerce them? I mean, they're all, I could go on and on and on. There right. are lots and lots of questions. And it's because of years, if not centuries, of scandals sure. where people were experimented on against without their knowledge or against their will and without protections, and people were harmed terribly. People were given diseases to study them. People had uh, uh, live cancer cells injected into their body. Um, they were, in the famous Tuskegee study, they were told they were being treated and they weren't being treated. Treatment was actively withheld from So they're... It's a whole history of really horrible examples. And so when that all came to a, a climax or a crisis because of the Tuskegee study in the early 70s, Congress passed a whole set of rules. I'm not familiar with the Tuskegee study. What was so that? So the Tuskegee study was probably the most famous research scandal in the United States. And what happened there was 400 black men from um, Macon County, Alabama, were recruited, all of whom had syphilis. And you know what's interesting? This is, this is a perfect example of how noble motives without controls go wrong. Mm. So most people don't understand this about Tuskegee. And that is um, the original reason that Tuskegee study was done was because there were arguments going on in the scientific community. African-American men had syphilis at a much, much higher rate than white men. Mm -hmm. And the question was, is it because of social circumstances of being black in the United States? Mm -hmm. Or is there actually some physiological difference between white and black men that makes black men more susceptible to syphilis? Mm -hmm. Now, that is a perfectly reasonable <coughs> scientific question. Right. The people of Tuskegee thought it was social, not physiological, mm -hmm. which is now what we certainly know to be true. Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted to prove that. But how did they try to prove it? They had had these mobile treatment vans that went around treating men with syphilis. And the Public Health Service, the precursor to the CDC, ran out of money for those vans. So instead of just telling people we ran out of money, we can't treat you anymore, they had the idea, well, let's get a research grant, and then we will study what happens to them when they don't get treated anymore and see the course of their untreated illness. 400 men were told they were being treated, but it was even worse than that. They went out of their way to make sure these men never got treated. They got them exemptions from military service. If the man moved from Macon County, Alabama, a letter from the Public Health Service went to every medical professional in 100 miles from where they moved saying, if, you know, Tom Jones goes into your clinic, please call us immediately and don't treat him because he's a part of a public health service study. So these men, you know, slept with their right. wives and girlfriends and other men or who knows who they right. slept with and passed this disease on. And they, many of them died of this disease. Well, that finally came out, which itself is an interesting story. People who are interested in this should read the wonderful book about it called Bad Blood. Bad, Bad Blood. Okay. Um, 
because that's what they were told they had. Right. Bad blood. Um, they got lumbar punctures. I mean, they just, it's as bad as it gets. And um, finally, an African-American researcher became part of the public health service, found out about this, and tried to blow the whistle on this, and no one would listen to him. And finally, in the early 1970s, it came out in the Washington Times. They, that was the paper that exposed mm -hmm. it. And it blew up in a kind of nuclear way uh, because the ninth, you know, early 70s was a civil rights time. And this right. became a kind of perfect example, perfect storm of everything they did wrong. So the, uh, there were many results of the Tuskegee study. It still is a powerful image in the black community. I once saw... Uh, an episode of 2020 or one of those magazine shows. This was when they were still doing general reporting. And um, uh, the reporter wanted to, and, and there was a rumor in the black community that white scientists had infected the black community with AIDS, and that's why there was AIDS in black community. And he got a group of people sitting there from all walks of life. Um, Spike Lee was one of them. He got some famous people, got some regular people, just a group of about 12 black citizens of the United States. And, he's, and he was incredulous, the reporter, white reporter. Mm -hmm. He said, how could you possibly believe mm -hmm. that you know, the government would try to inject you with AIDS to see what happened? And they went down the line, and one after the other, they went, Tuskegee, 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 Tuskegee. It became this powerful symbol of, of how government will use black people for, you know, in deeply problematic ways without caring about their, their well-being. That reminds me so much. First of all, I didn't know that story, and that's horrific. Um, as I'm processing, listening to that, and I'm going to for sure go um, get the book and follow up. Yeah. I'm sure there's a documentary and other conversations around it. It reminds me, in a in my brain anyway, yeah. in a uh, associated way with some of what's going on today. I wrote here on my note, fake news. Can you imagine... If you, whatever else are the circumstances of your community, in this case, the African-American community, mm -hmm. but you believe certain things um, are true, even living, you know, because the experience wasn't the same everywhere in the country for African-Americans. Right? I grew right. up primarily sure. in California. It was different to a large degree than the South that I moved to. Um, and days and times are different. When we bought our big data center down in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, my guests have heard before, when we, it was the old Sears and Roebuck catalog distribution center. So if, for those of us who remember what that catalog looked like, right. if you ordered something that came out of the catalog east of the Mississippi, it came out of this place in Atlanta. And when we first bought this facility and we're tearing it down, it was built in the 50s and modified a few times, we came to the old walled-off cafeteria and it was segregated. Yeah. We stood there looking at it like this can't be true. I I have no experience. My first time I got drunk was at my friend's bar mitzvah. I'm not Jewish. The prettiest girls in my high school were black and brown and what like this this is not the experience of them or me of that era. And yet here it is in front of us. It's kinda of like going to the dark side of the moon and you discover technology that you know. So anyway, it was a very unusual um, circumstance, but if I flash forward to today, there are other people groups, not just the African American mm -hmm. community, but other people groups that I know, friends or family of, that believe the government's not telling them the truth about fill in the blank. Right. A lot of it's not accurate. I think they're coming to the wrong conclusion. But there's there are some things that come um, 
that come to light later mm -hmm. without going into the morass of political elections of the last five or six years. Right. But there are these things that are coming true. And they're like, they, they lose so much trust in, for example, media. Yeah. I will trust intrinsically this channel, but that channel's the devil. Right. And, and they're being manipulated, you know, over and over and over. Anyway, I don't mean to, di right. to diminish this, but it just seems like it's one of, in a, in a series of things that human beings, not just white human beings, mm -hmm. but human beings do to other human beings um, throughout human history. Right. And um, we trust institutions that fail us. Yeah, and that is part of why ethics, I think, is so important because ethics stands as a watchdog. It should, and it's mm -hmm. at its best, stand as a watchdog over those things. Um, medicine is an interesting, I mean, medicine is what I've worked on most in my career, and medicine is an interesting example of that because Tuskegee is just one example. I mean, Hispanic women, Latino women were, were sterilized against their will um, when they had to have um, cesarean sections and or gynecological surgeries in California, in Southern California, for 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 a number of years, um, there are stories of you know using orphanages as research sites and using orphans as research sites. I mean, we can again and again and again we find populations, and not just racial populations, gender or institutional populations. Sure. There's a lot of scandals in of the use of uh, medical research in prisons, for example. Right. Um, this just happens over and over and over again. Today, we put all kinds of safeguards around that, and people don't quite understand how difficult it is to do research today, in part, and, and, and scientists resent it, that they have to jump through so many hoops mm. to get uh, the institutional review boards, which which review every scientific study right. and make sure that they're not hurting people. But this is why, because we have this unbelievable history of, of just um, deeply problematic and unethical behavior. Well, it starts with what I wrote over here was, starts with a noble cause. Like people are not, you know, right. they, they believe they're giving value. For example, um, I remember one of the things that surprised me, I think it was origin of species. It may not be, but, look, white human beings are one kind of human being and black human beings are a different kind of human being. And we look back on it now. I cannot believe Patrick um, from Emory uh, History Department, I cannot believe, uh, I'll, um, uh, anyway, one of the professors. I, um, I know he you mean. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll have Derek put it in the show. I can't remember. I can't believe he's going yeah. to send me a, a nice note. But he was talking about, look, at once upon a time in America, people that were fighting for the South believed um they were right yeah like ethically morally these were not uh you know demon possessed people they were not you know it's so today 200 or 100 and some odd years later 150 years later we look back and we're like how could you possibly come to that conclusion he said look you could go through all of human history a friend of mine just moved back from thailand and um he uh, worked with an organization that helped rescue the sex trafficked children. Right. And um, sex trafficking is illegal in Thailand. And yet this uh, thing happens because you have, what the way I understand it, I might get it wrong, but the way I understand it is you have the hill tribe people, mm -hmm. which live within the borders of Thailand, and then you have the people that are, you know, the Thai descent as they would understand it. They're different types of human beings you'll find almost none of the former in the sex trade traffic right. 
and it's almost entirely made up of these hill tribes that sell their children and they're not allowed to get driver's license and these are the things and it'd be easy as easy for us to shake our fists just go around the world or go throughout all of human history um it you know if we don't guard ourselves from the devil inside we end up whether it's a noble cause or yeah. whatever it is and it's not always a noble cause a lot of times it's a, a economic reason sure. but we come to these conclusions you know m most groups even groups that we think of as really horrible mm -hmm. find ethic try to find ethical justification for what they do i used to teach deviance and social control a class in that when i was at the university of pennsylvania and I always assigned them this article. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was something like um, rapist vocabulary of justifying motives. Mm -hmm. And it interviewed people who had raped people. Mm -hmm. And not one of them said, look, I'm a really bad person. I did something horrible. Or I'm a good person, but I did this horrible thing. Right. I'm really... They would go out of their way to find an ethical justification for why they did it. Right. She really wanted it. I know she's saying I raped her, but she right. really wanted it. Look, the way she was dressed, I know that, you know, right. or um, she's the kind of person that would turn down a person like me, so it taught her something. I mean, right. they go out of the way. People try to justify what they do and believe. And that's why ethics is so important. So now we've got, you know, people out there in the political world. Um, who who justify telling untruths because they think the political goal of those untruths is greater than the fact that they're lying. Right. And on both, this isn't right. a partisan comment. Right. That is an ethical violation of, in a very deep way as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Lying to achieve a political purpose, as far as I'm concerned, undermines the legitimacy of the political purpose itself. If you have to lie right. to convince people that your political perspective is right, then there's something wrong with your political perspective. And so over and over again, we see these basic ethical issues constantly undermining what I think are people's claims. And I'll give you one other real, I know you're going to find this interesting. So there's, there's a whole group of people um, in the neuroscience world uh, Julianne Savalescu of Oxford is sort of one of the leaders of this idea, who talk about moral enhancement. We now know what part of the brain we make our moral decisions in. Mm -hmm. uh, fMRI studies, brain imaging studies have shown you give people moral problems, we know what part of the brain they're using to try to solve. So there's now a large literature, books and articles, about moral enhancement with the idea is as we begin to understand the brain more and use, um, uh, and maybe at some point be able to actually intervene in the brain in helpful ways, um, which we can already in minor ways, mm -hmm. what if we could m enhance the moral decision-making part of the brain and make people better and more moral decision-makers? Mm -hmm. So they're going around having conferences on this stuff, even mm -hmm. though we can't do any of it yet. It's right. all speculative. And, and so... The point I keep trying to make is this. If you brought a Taliban leader in here right now right. and you sat him down, he would give you extremely sophisticated moral and ethical reasoning why what he's doing is the right thing to do. Right. So would a lot of Nazis in Nazi Germany. By right. the way, there were books written right. justifying Nazi ethics. Right. And so the idea 
that if you enhance the ethical, the ethical part of the brain, the moral decision-making part of the brain, you're going to end up with nice Western liberal thinking, liberal with a little L in right. that, sen- in that right. sentence, is a fantasy. Right. Right? Um, people use the moral parts of their brain to justify th- things all the time, and perhaps enhancing that part of the brain will just make their justifications more powerful, right. not change them into our view of ethics. So this is all part of why ethics as a discipline becomes important because then you can, refu- using ethics from the point of ethics, not politics and not other things, you can begin to refute ethical systems that have gone awry, I believe. Right. But um, you know, th- this is all part of what makes ethics interesting to me. Yeah. Patrick Ollett was the name I was trying uh, to remember. Right. Um, and he makes indirectly, but um, sort of the same point, which is, look, you know, let's with some trepidation look back and judge by today's standards those folks. We clearly, with this information, he also would, my words, and I think what you're describing is, is part of the, the um, community of ethics is it's collaborative. Yeah. I've got to I've got to be willing to welcome in other people to help me um, have a different perspective, perhaps a different ethic mm-hmm. in some things. We need to have an underlying maybe whether it's these ten ethic values or whatever you know the value of human life or humans important, et cetera. Um, but it's a um, it's complicated. In fact, it reminds me of what I wrote down here before about the rock. When you would ask yeah. your students, you know, and you're on the rock, how many students do you think sometimes they answer the way they do? because they don't want the room to know what they're really thinking. Like there's peer pressure to don't be super transparent. Or do you ever, every now and then get a little surprised and like, well, okay, well, I need to keep an eye on that person. They're a little weird. <laughs> no, but I mean, th- there really aren't that many. Here are the answers that are possible. <clears throat> One, I could plot something, mm. right? So I could sit there and think, oh, and I get back, I'm going to kill that person, right? <laughs> so Interesting. Right. Good answer, but it's it's about a future relationship. I t- right. tried to take relationship, right. so that's a, that is a reasonable answer. One could make a plausible argument that if you're serious about it, that's an unethical act. Right. Number two, they say some of them say you could, for example, masturbate. Mm. But of course, is masturbation unethical? Only in certain religious systems. Right. So I make it really. I try to make it really clear. That's a, that may be a sin, it right, may be, right. but I'm, I don't think we can make the argument that it's unethical. Right. So that goes, I could kill myself, some people say, right. and that's an interesting one. Is that right. unethical? Right. Well, interesting, when you ask people if it's unethical, they often will give you a religious answer not realizing it's, we don't have a right. right. Well, why don't I have a right? right. It's my body, but God, right. and then you get religious. Right. The ones that are a little more sophisticated go back to relationships. Well, what about your mother right. and your sister, you know, mourning for you and your children? So I go, aha, uh-huh, again, you're put, because the purpose of this exercise is to say it's about relationships, right? Aha, right? uh-huh, now you're again trying to bring relationships in where I've tried to take them away. Right. The point is you can't think of an unethical thing you could do on that rock that doesn't involve trying to bring relationships into it because ethics is always about relationships. And... Um, and so uh, that's really the, the lesson there. And then once you get that down, that ethics is about how we treat each other mm-hmm. and not just each other, how we treat the environment, how we treat an animal, right? right? How we eat other living things. Here's one of my other favorite anecdotes. So I was at NASA uh-huh. 
and I met the guy who has the coolest title of any person on our sphere. His name is John Rummel, mm -hmm. and he was Chief of Planetary Protections. Hmm. Okay. I mean, is that as cool? Yeah. What do you do, Dad? I protect planets. That's right. my job, and that was his job. So his job was, you know, when the Apollo astronauts first came back from the moon, they were quarantined for 10 days. Right. Because we didn't know if there were pathogens on the moon. It sounds silly right. now almost, right. but we didn't know if there were sure. pathogens on the moon. And any craft we send to Mars or the moon is, is deeply sterilized to the degree humanly possible because we don't want to inoculate Mars with earthbound right. bacteria, then discover it later and think right. it's indigenous or, or cause some damage. Right. So he said, yeah, it's my job to protect the ecosystems of the moon and Mars. Right. I said, well, I get it with Mars. It may have some water. It may, we may have mm -hmm. some, but the moon is just a barren rock. What do you right. mean by the ecosystem of the moon? Right. The moon doesn't have one. And he said a deeply profound ethical response. He said, that may be true, but if I don't think of the moon as having an ecosystem, I can't protect it. And when you think about that, what he is saying is, if I can't, I can't establish a relationship with a rock. Mm -hmm. If I can't establish a relationship with the thing I'm supposed to pretend and think of it, uh, protect and think of it as something in need of protection, then I can't do my job. So I have to conceptualize it in such a way that allows me to develop a relationship with it. So even when we're talking about nature and even inanimate objects, we're still talking about relationship when we're talking about ethics. Um, I could spend a lot more time here, but I want to segue into, um, if we're thinking about relationships and we're thinking about ethics, how I initially discovered you was on this idea of future tech, artificial intelligence, yeah. et cetera. And where that genesis came from, I heard somebody talking about the geopolitics of artificial intelligence. And it, how, and it really got me thinking about a number of things. And one of the things they said was, look, if you've got a contract dispute, you've got a World Trade Organization. Or if you've got a, a diplomacy dispute, we've got the UN. If you've got, right, we've got these global institutions for health and diplomacy and um, how we do trade and international treaties and all these other things. And with <clears throat> AI and future tech, there's all kinds of things that could be broken away. How, how right. do we do that? Anyway, that got me thinking and I ended up discovering you. And so when you think about future tech, um, why don't I get out of the way? You talk a little bit about this in your TED talk, but um, could you help me and my audience understand bringing ethics into yeah. technology and AI? There's so many different ways to talk about this, but what I will do is I'll try to segue from what I was saying about relationships. Because okay. first of all, at one level, if you talk to the public about being scared of AI, mm -hmm. um, and you look at the sci-fi movies about you know iRobot and all of these right. you know AI, it's usually robots, not just AI, right. but sometimes you know in the movie She, it's about the woman who lives in his phone, right? right? So, what is it that they're either talking about in She or they're not talking about in right. iRobot? And that is what people are scared of is either a these mechanisms will not be capable of actually having a true human relationship with us. Mm -hmm. And so they will do things to hurt us because they don't understand compassion and relationships that's mm -hmm. foreign to them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to hurt us because of that. Mm -hmm. Or from the other side, 
because they will be able to develop relate like she does, mm-hmm. but there's still something so other that um, we will become to them. We will be treated by them the way a few minutes ago you and I were talking about the way humans treat others. Right. Right. So these are the two great fears in, in of people about AI. Mm. My fate will be in the hands of an AI that doesn't <clears throat> understand me or care about me. I mean, right. we worry about that with human beings, too, but it's right. worse. It's another level with AI. So um, when we think about moving... A- the fear of AI as we move into the future are, there, there are many of them, but one of the most important ones is that they will take over human roles, so they will start to make decisions and have authority in places that humans now make decisions and have authority. Mm-hmm. And because of the um, difference between a human being who has the capacity to empathize and put themselves in the position of the person they're making a decision from and have in some cases, like with a lawyer or a doctor, an actual legal fiduciary responsibility over that person, um, AI doesn't care. Right. So, so that's one fear. Fear number two is what I call human retrocession, and that is as AI becomes more powerful and more capable, it will start doing the things that humans used to do, and humans will lose the knowledge and capacity to do them. So this, happened, this has happened throughout history, right? Mm-hmm. As you know, you look at the late 19th century and the Industrial Revolution and the and the uh, uh, revolt against it with the Luddite, Luddites and others. That was one of their arguments. And, of course, how many people actually know how to shoe a horse anymore, right? right? But do we need right. to shoe a horse? So there are some of those kinds of tasks um, that we won't need to do anymore. Right. But there are others and uh, where we, you know, are we going to lose capacities that humans should have because we turn over those tasks and those capacities to machines. So that's another issue. Um, It has always been true that technology goes faster than both ethics and regulation. Mm. So that as new technologies emerge, um, we don't know how to regulate them or we don't know how to think about them. I was very active in the uh, late 90s um, in uh, artificial reproductive technology I um, was the uh, bioethicist for Planned Parenthood Federation of America uh, for a number of years, but my work was almost entirely around artificial reproductive technology, Mm -hmm. not some other things they did. Um, And I worked with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And one of the arguments that all of the fertility people made about that was every day a new technology is coming out. And it was true. The technology to help women get pregnant was at that period Mm -hmm. an incredible rapid change and got much much better we can help a lot of people get pregnant now that we couldn't before and they said our greatest fear is that regulators are going to come in and regulate this and screw it all up because they don't understand the technology Mm. so what ended up happening fertility clinics were less regulated than bowling alleys and liquor stores (laughs) i mean seriously right um, and this happens. What could go wrong there? What could go wrong there? <laughs> and that's why we had the Octomom, right. right? Where, you know, I mean, every ethical statement from every professional fertility society says you don't implant eight embryos into a woman. It's just, right. but there was no regulation that you couldn't do. Right. Um, and this is true over and over and over again with technology. It was true with genetic technologies. 
and it always lags. And when I was in uh, in Philadelphia, we were asked to speak to the state judges association, and what they wanted us to talk to them about was genetics. This was a big moment in genetics in the '90s, and so we basically gave them kind of genetics 101, what they had to look out for. They did not have a clue what a gene was. One of them said, so are all my genes in my brain? Is that where the genes live? I mean, they didn't have, they didn't have what we think of now as sixth grade genetic knowledge. And right. these were the people who were going to make decisions of, you know, the panting of the BRCA1 gene and things right. like that. So we have this deeply embedded problem, which is that regulation always lags behind technology. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening with AI. And we're scrambling to try to figure out how do we anticipate the problems and create systems that try to prevent them, but that don't cripple the progress of AI itself. Right. So in 2021, the European Union came out with a 108-page regulatory document for AI. Mm. It was their attempt to do that. They filled that panel with experts and everything. And still, the day it came out, you know, there were, you can look up, MIT, the MIT Technology Journal uh, had a big article about everything that was wrong with their regulations, et cetera. On the other hand, at least there's some regulation in the EU. We have nothing here, right? right? And so, which is better? Right. Well, if you talk to a tech CEO will tell you this is better. Right. But if you talk to a lot of the people who have to deal with the fallout of it, um, you know, uh, people, facial recognition technology, which is, which can be biased or which can be used for surveillance or what they're using, which they're using in China right. now to make sure that people with COVID don't go out of their houses. I mean, right. you know, where do you draw those lines? And I think that is the most powerful question that confronts a, a lot of AI technology moving forward. I want to spend some time on that. Before I do, I was reminded of this bridge that you helped me in one of your talks about technology, the evolution of technology, and the changing and how it can change ethic in a way that generations before would never even thought about it. And it was um, the idea of plagiarism. Mm. Could you just take a minute to explain that, and then I'm gonna I want to pick it back yeah. up when we come back about um, ethic and AI. People tend to think that ethical ideas of the current time were always true, mm -hmm. and plagiarism I use because it's a wonderful example of how that's not right. Right. For most of history, there was no such thing as plagiarism. That is, not only didn't people really there was not only didn't people really care if others copied their words. They wanted it. Mm -hmm. That was how your ideas got out into the world right. because there was no printing press and there was no copyright and there was no intellectual property and there was just you sitting at your desk with a quill and parchment, right. you know, writing out your ideas and then sending them out and hoping someone would listen to them. Right. And then if you saw your idea, even under someone else's name, somewhere else you said, aha, I've got influence. Right. That's what was important. And the idea of stealing someone else's idea didn't become a thing until after the invention of the printing press, after the monetization of ideas. Mm -hmm. So once you could actually put all of your ideas into a book that could be mass-produced and could be sold, all of a sudden you had a monetary interest in no one else 
copying your stuff and trying to sell it also. So um, that came in, you know, the real sort of beginning of modern plagiarism was late 17th, early 18th century. And then um, what was interesting, we don't have time here, but there's a whole interesting history of how that first started out uh, uh, as a um, just a purely financial thing. Then it became an a ro- in, in, in the Romantic era, it was about the creative muse and the creative genes. What right do you have right. to take someone else's creative muse? That was a later even idea. Right. Um, and then as these kinds of things became even more monetized, it became part of sort of the fabric of capitalist ideas the idea industry, mm-hmm. so that books and other things that we write, and then you know, visual arts and other things belong to the person who did them. And we take that as such a fundamental truth right. that we don't realize that it's just a historical moment. And my argument is that's changing. Mm. And what's changing it is another technological development. You know, it's one thing if when I was uh, you know when I was in college, the way you plagiarized was you opened the book in front of you, you sat down at your typewriter, and you very carefully, with your head going from book to typewriter, book to typewriter, book to right. typewriter, you copied what you right. saw. It was a deeply intentional and very, um, you know, you, you didn't plagiarize by accident. Right. Uh, though that happened too. I mean, you wrote something down on a flashcard and forgot where you got it. But I mean, right. it was different. Now right. with cut and paste and mashups and, and you know, you can, in, in a second, you can, you know, select all an article and, paste it right, right into your paper if you wanted to. I mean, right. the technology has made the transfer of the content of intellectual property, words, images, sounds, moving moving pictures, so easy to move, distort slightly. Right. Uh, I mean, Warhol started this, but he was still doing it with the old technology, right? right? Now you can, you know, any of us can be an Uber Warhol, right? right? Um, the idea that you can take an image, alter it slightly, and call it yours, and that right. tested the boundaries of plagiarism. Right. So, so one of the things I ask is, are, are are my grandchildren going to think of plagiarism entirely differently? Is the and should we, as teachers in twenty twenty two, be teaching plagiarism, be teaching a twentieth century version of what plagiarism is to our students? Or are we going to need to change our thinking about what plagiarism is, how we think about it, what intellectual property is? There's another element to this, of course, which is that because of all these changes, the very nature of making money from intellectual property has changed, right? Mm. So when I was young and when you were young, how did an artist make most of their money? Uh, Let's say a musical artist Mm -hmm. selling CDs and records. Right. But they don't anymore, right? right? Now they do it through concerts and other things right. because the actual reproduction of intellectual property is no longer easily monetizable. Right. So even that part of it has changed. And because of that, I think the fundamental nature of how we think about intellectual property and its transfer is right now changing as we sit here and will be something else in a number of years. My um, A good friend of mine, Tim Huffman, um, well, he's an industry now. He's a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, and he's got friends, you know, every classic rock, whatever, right. uh, uh, buddy of his. And then a mutual friend of ours, Jeremy Gilbertson, who's also here in Atlanta, um, is a producer for Netflix, also a musician, and these other things. We've had them here on the show talking yeah. about um, one of the things that you've alluded to, we'll get into when we get to bioengineering, 
because they can create world-class music in their home. Like it's never been easier exactly. to make and produce this content. And you'd think, I mean, the big sort of dark cloud on the music industry forever, whether it was Elvis or pick somebody was those first few record contracts on how you were ripped off by the producers or the, you know, the record companies or whatever, because you didn't really own the rights to your stuff. And they felt like, look, in the age of new technology, it's going to be so much better for us. And it isn't. If anything, it's way worse because those old paradigms that even as onious as they were, mm -hmm. um, there was a structure and a path. And if exactly. you got to a certain you know, level, you got more creative control and all the more money and all these other things. And the rules have been broken in so many ways by so many countries and so many different streaming vehicles or whatever that it, we're trying to figure it out through NTFs and other things like, how do we do this? It's never been easier um, to make music, but it's yeah. also never been easier to steal it or movies. I've had uh, um, Mark Hoffmeyer in from who writes for Rotten Tomatoes and Wired Magazine and others. He's like, look, before you used to worry about getting the light exactly right and all these other things, which are still the art of a you know the photographer and the director – but not to the medium, you know, you don't destroy yeah. the medium anymore that you used to or, or have it caught up in moisture, but it's never been easier to steal your content, right. um, especially in the age of COVID where most of the producers are trying to do this stuff from home or from a, you know, not from their home, uh, from a Hollywood studio or Atlanta studio for that matter. And so, you know, people have figured out, hmm, I can tap into and intercept their stream or I get all these complexities. Um, the other thing that you reminded me of is um, completely unrelated, but still related, which is plagiarism. Before I remember when I, I didn't even know it was plagiarism. <laughs> That's my defense. It was fourth grade, and I had a book report due the next day. And of course, I got my Encyclopedia Britannica out, and I'm, it didn't occur to me to change the quote I'm quoting exactly. and to give credit to it, and I typed it all up. Um, I didn't get in as much trouble as I could have because I so mistyped it, it became this big humorous thing in class. But it was my first kind of embarrassed and pulled to the side of this is, you know, read it, let it inform you, think about it, and then what's your take on this? Right. Do that. Um, today, you don't have to do that. Not only can I copy and paste, but I can put it in a tool and tell it, make this plagiarist, uh, plagiarism proof. Right. And through AI or whatever tech, it will swap out ideas and thoughts and whatever and create, hey, this is Paul or David's mm -hmm. idea. No, I just stole somebody else's and it rearranged and changed the words and made it pass the sniff test yeah. enough. But I don't have to think about it. And how that's <laughs> related is my kids the other day had to drive somewhere that they weren't used to driving. Now, when I was a kid and drove across the country from L.A. to Fort Benning where I was an airborne paratrooper, five times, I had this giant Rand McNally map mm -hmm. that didn't even show exits off of freeways. Yeah. Here's the West Coast. Here's Georgia. See ya. Yeah. So I did the same thing. I went to AAA with my friend. We were driving cross country. And AAA had a service where someone would sure. open a map and take a red pen and help you trace your, right. you know, and that's what we had, a giant open map. And it on. caused you to think. You had to right. think about it. I had to problem solve. What how would what did we do in Tucum Carry? Or right. you know, all these other things. When the tech doesn't work for my kids, like they're calling a panic. I don't even know where I'm what do you know east from west? You know, right. where's the sun rising? And it, it's frightening because I'm not using my brain in the same way. Well, that's what I mean by human retrocession, which I talked about before, losing capacities. Because you're allowing technology to take over that capacity for you. Right. And sometimes it's, it, you know, 
I moved to Atlanta uh, 14 years ago, and let me tell you, unlike Philadelphia, which is laid out in a grid pattern, right. and you can give easy directions, Atlanta is like someone drops spaghetti, and and street names change, and right. they cross each other three times, and I don't know how people lived here They're before. They're all a variation of Peachtree. Right. And I don't know how people lived here before GPS. I would thank God for GPS. But, yeah. you know, but because I come from the old school now, right. you know, I always watched. I always tried to pay attention. I can drive all around without GPS now because right. I've been, you know, I, I still had that brain that was um, socialized without GPS. Right. But I wonder if that's true of my children, whether they're actually spending the kind of using the kind of attention that I use. So that if I turned off their GPS, would they know how to get around? I have a suspicion they wouldn't. It wouldn't be easy. Yeah. It wouldn't be easy. One of the things you talk about when you talk about ethics as it relates to tech, in particular with artificial intelligence, you make this great point about the biases, and you alluded yeah. to that a little bit earlier. Can you tease that out about how, for example, HR departments, yeah. their AI may come to conclude? You know, anyway, right. let me just let you take so it away. Every, so let me say something about AI um, that I also try to, to tell everyone because I think it's a really important thing to understand about AI. So I've worked, as you said, in many other areas of ethics, and I've worked in a lot of different areas of biotechnology. If you're, let's say, let's say you know, there are a lot of ethical issues around stem cells. Let's mm -hmm. say you work with stem cells. You can spend your whole life working with stem cells and never once think about ethics if you don't want to. Right. You should. Right. And you're a bad person if you don't, we say. But I mean, you know, but you could, and that's fine. Right. The interesting thing about AI is that ethics isn't extrinsic to it like it is to stem cells. It's intrinsic to it. And by that, I mean you can't work in most. I mean, there are some areas, of mm -hmm. course. But you can't work in many, many, many areas of AI. You can't and not think about ethics. Mm -hmm. Why? Because first of all, AI makes decisions. Mm -hmm. And decisions are always ethical in the sense that decisions are always based on some set of value-weighted precepts. Right? If I say to you, should I punch you in the face or invite you to, you know, for a beer? Right. You'll say, invite me for a beer. <laughs> why would you? And I say, why? Right. And you're going to give me a value statement. Right. Well, it would hurt. It would damage our relationship. I mean, you're right. going to give me all these reasons. that We don't even think about it. It's so deeply embedded in the way we think. Right. Well, it's not embedded in the way AI thinks, and we have to teach it to AI, and there are all these thousands of articles and thousands of methodology about how we should teach AI value right. propositions and value hierarchies and things like that, and should we do it by, by encoding the rules, or should mm -hmm. we do it by having it examined 200 million documents of something or giant data sets and glean it from those itself. I mean, right. this is the big conversation in AI. Right. But you can't, you cannot do AI and not think about this. Right. So you have to think about how AI makes decisions, and then you have to think about what the implications of those decisions are. And that's why the issue of automated cars became so important mm -hmm. because when automated cars first were contemplated, when people started to develop them and they realized we have to teach this car how to make a whole bunch of decisions that have profound ethical complications. Should I crash into the wall or should I hit that woman with the baby stroller? You know, I mean, they're going to have to make decisions that you and I make. Right. And very often we make the wrong decision, but we forgive ourselves because we say it happened so fast I acted on reflex and instinct, and I just, I don't even know how I made that decision. Right. Well, we can get away with that. Right. But that's not the truth of AI. Right. To AI, one second to make a decision is a thousand years. It can do 
millions of calculations in that one second. Right. And so we, we need to decide ahead of time how it's going to make that decision or perhaps what decision it should make and tell it to make that decision. But ethics is intrinsic to these technologies. And because of that, there's an enormous uh, enterprise now in AI ethics because um, it ha it's a problem at every level. It's a conceptual problem, and then it's a programming problem mm -hmm. because um, the people who are actually do creating the algorithms, it's, even if we came up with some good at, uh, theoretical solutions, translating them into operationalizable um, technology is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that uh, we teach AI largely through data sets. Mm -hmm. That's the main way AI learns. All data sets are biased. Mm -hmm. And all data sets are biased not in the sense that bad people made them and sure. did, didn't like this group of people. They're biased in the, sets that in the sense that data sets are always some selection of variables that the person who created the data set was interested in. Mm -hmm. So I want, might want to study something. So I have to decide, well, what information should I gather to study that thing? And then there are other things I'm not going to gather. I don't really care what color the people's eyes are that I'm studying to see if they're, you know, drive right. drunk, right? right? So I'm not going to collect whether they're blue-eyed or brown-eyed. Right. I'm not going to. There's all. There's millions of types of data we're not going to collect because they're not relevant. Right. But that can. But the AI isn't looking at our data set for the reasons that we gathered it. It's looking at our data set to learn. Mm. And so the biases, the missing data, the assumptions that we made um, all get encoded into that data and get translated to AI. And that's why, especially at the beginning, AI was so profoundly biased. So, you know, for many years at the beginning, if you went to Google Images and you typed in chef, you got men. And if you typed in cook, you got women. Hmm. Pictures of men and women. Why? Because as... Google Images was learning how we use words to connect to images, it f reflected the bias that most of the images that used the word chef showed males, and most of the images that used the word cook showed women, and the same thing with nurses and doctors and other things like that. And we had to teach AI not to do that. But by just using the data that was out there, the, the biases that were inherent in the data got transferred to the AI. Now, we're much more aware of that now, and it's less blatant now. Now the biases are worse because they're much subtler and more difficult mm. difficult to find, and they're more deeply embedded in the data. Do you think that sometimes, um, as you're describing that, like what role then does tuning for me... Um, because I come from a cultural perspective. I come from a, um, you know, let's say I want... Yes, I want food, but I want a kosher food. Right. And I don't think about typing in the word kosher or I want uh, yeah. Eastern European, right? right? I have these things. I want always a female chef, in particular a Caribbean or uh -huh. whatever, because my personal experiences are I just got back from the Caribbean last week. And um, the food was amazing. I've never really been exposed to it. Um, I, I never sought it out before. And it was so flavorful and so good. And I had such a misconception about what the spices or whatever would be like. And But if I'm from the islands and I'm here, you know, in southeast United States, 
I, I, I wonder what the, that role there, that difference is there, where it's, um, it's looking at my behavior, not just the biases of the programmers or the machines that are teaching the machines, because uh, I don't want to lose it. I want Netflix to suggest right. something to me. But there, see, there you've just you've just Did I totally, screw it up? no 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 you've just <laughs> totally identified the great strength and the great weakness of these technologies. Okay. The great strength is you can put in what are the spices used in Caribbean food, right? And you can find out, right. or you can say great Caribbean restaurants in Atlanta, and you can find out, right? But I, who may never have eaten Caribbean food and don't know that it's great food, right. can put in great food in Atlanta and never get the Caribbean restaurant because the majority of people in Atlanta don't really know about Caribbean food. I'm making this up, right, obviously, sure. but I'm just trying to make a point. Yeah. Don't know about Caribbean food. And so when they put in great food, they put in the burger joints, right? right. So I will not learn about the Caribbean food. When, when I type in great food in Atlanta, I don't mean hamburger joints. Mm -hmm. I mean, of all the possible cuisine in the world, what are the best places in Atlanta? And unless... The program I'm using is really well designed to understand that I'm going to get a bunch of hamburger joints, right. for example. Right. Um, so the best of it is I can be really specific and get incredible information that I could never get before. But that kind of general search is much more dif difficult for AI to do in the sense that the best food in Atlanta may be a Burmese restaurant somewhere in Doraville, you know. Right. But the Burmese community here is tiny, perhaps. I don't right. know how big it is. Right. And so there aren't that many people who go there, and we'll never know about it from a general Google search because there aren't thousands of people saying the best food in Atlanta is this little Burmese restaurant in Doraville, right? right. So that's both the strength and the weakness of that kind of technology. When, when you're having a conversation or you've had a number of conversations, you know, what are the, uh, around ethics in AI, or actually, I want to go back to the, um, you reminded me of it with the car. When we teach a surgeon who's, who's operating on a pregnant woman, mm -hmm. and they're, uh, you know, you, she's got her life, and she's got the life inside of her, do they not go through, uh, whether it's an ethical conversation or training to, like, which life, or a fireman, there are people in a building, and it's burning. Do you go for the 80-year-old a guy um, who's just inside the door? Do you run to the minority group? Do you go to the children, but you're putting your life sure. in danger? I mean, don't we already do those? Yes. And those conversations happen all the time. Now, of course, of all of those, I know medicine the best because I've spent my life yeah. in medicine. So we have those conversations in medicine all the time. And in fact, that conversation itself is part of the big uh, argument over um, how we treat pregnant women and fetuses, just as you just right. as you suggested. Do we privilege the woman, or do we privilege the the baby inside or the right. fetus inside? And so, for example, for my tradition, Jewish tradition is very clear about that. Mm. The woman always takes precedence, gotcha. always. Right. Um, and um, you know, other traditions don't say that. Right. So the question then becomes. In a pluralistic society like ours, how are those decision, decisions made? And the answer is there isn't one standard for all of the United States around, around many of those things. Right. There are around some. There are st standards of care that are generally accepted everywhere. 
But then there are also differences of opinion. Uh, Catholic, a Catholic health system might behave differently than a secular health system mm-hmm. around an issue like that, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and there could be active, ongoing arguments going on. And that's what ethics is. I mean, so ethics is this body of um, decided upon principles that we all believe in and we all do and we never really think about, so we don't think of it as ethics. And then there are the parts of ethics that are still undecided upon, that we still haven't reached consensus on. And those are the things we argue about all the time, and that's why we think ethics is arbitrary. Because look at us arguing all these. We don't realize that there's this giant elephant of decided ethical issues that we never talk about because we're we, we do agree that I don't go and punch you in the face. I take you out. Right. And maybe not for a beer, right? right. But, um, you know, you, I, I always tell my students, look at us right now. I am standing up in front of you speaking. You are sitting there quietly writing or typing. You're not talking to each other. You're not facing the back of the room. You're not dancing. Um, you know, you're all dressed pretty much the same. You're dressed gender appropriately, right. though that's changing. Right. Uh, but still, it's right. true for right. the most part. I said... There, I could name a thousand conventions that you are all observing right now, and yet each of you thinks of yourself as powerful individuals who don't follow the, the crowd. Right. And that's, that's the truth of ethics also. The vast majority of ethical behavior we just engage in without thinking about it. Right. And then there are the areas that are under contention. And the same thing's true in medicine around the issues you just asked about. Most of those are decided, but then... The question of the priority of the woman or the fetus is one that still has some traction. In, in other societies, it's completely settled. Right. In Israel, it's completely settled. Nobody's right. arguing the fetus should have any priority over the woman because right. it's even even the non-Jews there accept right. that. Right. Here, it's still uh, an issue of contention. Right. So, uh, yeah, those are and and when I do, I've trained medical students in ethics my whole career, right. and we do it through vignettes. And those are exactly the kinds of vignettes that we'll give them, and then we'll have them really try to grapple with that ethical dilemma. I think the biggest difference of everything, or the theme that we've talked, that's kind of run through all of this is human beings are making those decisions as opposed to a machine. That's one of the exactly. things that you said that really caught my attention was a, a machine is going to, you know, solely has to deci- describe to... Um, the FAA, why he decided to land that plane on the Hudson River. And he, you know, um, it was, it turns out it was the right decision because every other thing that the computer said to do failed in the simulation and right. that worked. Right. Despite all odds, miracle, however you want to describe it, it worked. And I don't mean that as an outlier, but they had a conversation with him. And I wonder if it had just been a machine flying the plane, which I mm-hmm. cannot yet get myself to get. I fly a lot, but yeah. I don't know that I want to get on a plane with no human right. agency involved. But um, how would you bring a machine to court to have that conversation? Look, here's the algorithm, and this was a 98.2, and that was a you know uh, 1.8 or whatever. I chose a 98, and it didn't work this time. Well, I mean, that's one of the one of the bit in the list of ethical problems of AI that I teach, one whole slide and one whole section of that is about responsibility and accountability. So if that plane or that automated car hits and kills someone, who is responsible? Is it the owner of the car? Mm-hmm. Is it the Ford, Tesla? You know, right. 
Is it the software engineer who created the decision-making software? Is it the committee that they put together at Tesla to decide what, how to teach that car what to do? You know, so it it'll never be the software itself, except maybe a hundred years from now. Right. I mean, until the software, we believe, has some agency, and we don't believe software has agency. Right. So that, you know, that will never happen. But this accountability question is a very profound question around AI itself. And um, there's another piece to this which is really interesting, and that is I could prove to you, perhaps, that this automated car um, makes has 10% of the accidents that human drivers have, mm. that it's much more efficient, that it has saved thousands of lives by being able to stop on a dime, by being able to, you know, it never gets worried, it never gets distracted, it never falls asleep. It doesn't make bad decisions because we all know the decision, right? Right. Um, and yet, <clears throat> when it does kill someone, you're going to be more upset that an automated car killed someone than that a human being behind the wheel killed someone. Right. And uh, you mentioned that I, I worked with an HR group. What was interesting about that is these were, these were HR executives who were using an AI program to look through resumes. Mm -hmm. And one of the points we talked about was if I put together a group of people and we looked through 100 resumes and I could prove at the end that given the criteria we were looking through, we were 85% effective in pulling out the right people, everyone would say, well, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But if I used a software program and I showed you that it was 95% effective, everybody says, well, what about the 5% it missed? Right. Right. We judge these programs differently than we judge human. We think of human beings as fallible. We think of human beings as making mistakes. We don't want our technology to be fallible and make mistakes. We judge it more harshly. We expect more out of it. And, and that, I think, is, part of the, is going to be part of the challenge of the AI industry is how do they convince people that, you know, AI is going to make some mistakes and that's going to be part of it and that we need to look at the overall picture and AI in certain areas perhaps being much more efficient. And and, and I'll give you the greatest example Please. of that, which I know that uh, you're going to really want to talk about. And that's what we call LAWS, which stands for Lethal Automated Weapons Systems. Oh, sweet. Yes. Well, I love this and I'm terrified of this at the same yeah, time. Yeah, we all are. I mean, so let's, so what are, what are these? These are, um, uh, machines. Um, and now I'm not talking about drones that are operated by some person sitting in front of a screen that decides when the drone shoots. Right. I'm talking about self-contained automated system that can roll or walk or fly into a war theater, look around, decide on their own, who the enemy combatants are and and take them out, and these weapons and and there's every increment in between. There's semi-automated. There's right. ones where they send it back to a human being and they at least say okay, you know they. So there's everything from human beings controlling them to absolutely no control. Right. And in there, so when you talk to people uh, who are for them, their argument is these are going to be so much better than sending troops in there. Mm -hmm. Not just because our troops get killed, mm -hmm. but because troops get scared and mm -hmm. they get tired and they get worried and they shoot because they're scared. They overreact. They overreact. Right. They underreact. Right. They, you know, these machines 
aren't scared for their lives. Right. They don't care that someone else is shooting at them. Right. They're not going to shoot a civilian because they're worried that the civilian has a gun hidden under right. her dress when it turns out. Right. You know. So the, the collateral damage, the civilian damage is going to be much, much less. Right. People on the other side are worried for all the reasons that we can understand. I right. mean, these are what happens when you take human agency out of the decision to kill a human being. Right. I mean, it's every science fiction movie right. you ever watched in your life. <laughs> it's the Matrix and everything else, right? right? So, um, you know, and how do we create a happy medium? And there are, there are um, agent, you know, there are groups now in, in around the world trying to create standards for this. There's the EU um, proposed, you know, a ban on any weapon that doesn't have a human being in the link somewhere to make the decision, right? I mean, that's, so there's all kinds of attempts to try to, to moderate this problem, but it is a very, very real one. And then, of course, even if we do come up with some great sort of compromise in the middle that allows semi-automatic weapons and we can show, it, it doesn't take a lot of technological know-how to get a hold of one of them and take out the semi-automatic. And so what about cyber, what about terrorism? What about rogue states, right. you know? Well, and everything you're saying is as if, so first I had hope in one of your conversations. Hmm. Um, it was, look, we've, 50 years ago, um, my, for me, um, and 60 years before that, my parents, part of their school drill was going under the desk yep. because of the Cold War and whatever. And we have, we're, we're, we're still not out of the woods yet, but, we, you know, there's very little threat or practice of an imminent nuclear attack. Um, yeah. God help us. Um, but it is, um, it's not as much a conversation <laughs> as it was once upon a time. Having said that, you could, just like we were talking about music, can I just make something, if I'm not a nation state, mm -hmm. not even necessarily a big terrorist cell, that Palantir or somebody's helping us to find through their big data, I'm just a person that is smart enough or can get on YouTube or one of these mm -hmm. other things and put together enough things that um, I can... Uh, I can attack my community around me in a profound way. No question. I mean, that's not just true of AI. It's also true of bioterrorism. I mean, after the invention of CRISPR, this incredibly um, efficient way to genetically engineer, mm -hmm. um, people today in 2022, the biology experiments that the average biology middle school teacher is getting their eighth grade students to do, the greatest scientists in the world couldn't do 20 years ago. Wow. Um, and that's how fast the technology, maybe 25, that's how fast the technology has changed. So the ability for a moderately well-educated graduate student dropout in genetics to create, to get a bacterium or a virus to genetically modify it and create a pathogen is exponentially higher than it was just a short time ago. Right. So, and that's just, you know, that's biology. Right. Uh, we, the capacity to create toxins or pathogens now um, for a rogue person to do that or a rogue nation or a terrorist right. to do that is so much greater than it was. Well, the same thing is not yet true, I hope, <laughs> by, uh, 
but will soon be true of these kinds of technologies. Also, I mean, the real danger right now is primarily hackers mm-hmm. hacking into existing systems, which right. is a different. And and they need to create things to do that. Right. Um, you know, uh, the Pegasus uh, um, software now, which can uh, be indetectably put on your phone and send all of your data out. I mean, that is now a worldwide scourge and it's happening everywhere. And there's a big article about it in this week's New Yorker. Mm. Um, And that is just the, the cutting edge. It's just the, the sort of coming wave of more and more sophisticated uh, AI um, viruses and malicious programs that are going to come. I I guess then, um, you know, just kind of in my mind, um, wrapping this part up, one of the things that you've, your career is in bioengineering. And I've heard you speak a number of times about these, on the one hand, these really cool Mm -hmm. um, endeavors where we can see scientists and um, neurologists and others introducing into animals so far electrodes and um, wires and you know wow what's the potential of mm-hmm. um, you know uh, cockroaches that can do this or rats that mm-hmm. can do that or monkeys that can do these other things yeah. and it seems to me that to bridge the gap then to human beings on the one hand to insert um, components in ourselves for example if I have a spinal injury or I've got a uh, um, you know, I want to circumvent uh, something that we identify leads to uh, mental health challenges or whatever. Like mm-hmm. here's back to noble cause. Here's how I want to help uh, human beings flourish, but I don't want to get hacked. Yeah. Or I don't want to take a group, an ethic, uh, you know, an, an ethical or not an ethical, an ethnicity in my community and say they're less human than me, and so therefore that gives me license to treat them as my, you know, servants as we've done in the past, or my, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, I'm I'm wondering how the world sits there, or not sits there, but has a conversation around how do we, um, how do we manage this? In the past, we would have a Geneva Convention. If we're gonna go to the war, we've got the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Even then we violate these things. how how in your community are we talking about putting boundaries on this thing that that we actually follow? It feels like this is a really slippery slope. Yeah. So we already do put all kinds of um, information technologies into human beings. Um, we do it through uh, prosthetic devices. We do it through uh, what we call um, LVADs, which are left ventricular assist devices. Um, we do it through all we have all kind we right now advocate have artificial organs for almost every organ in your body mm. um and not not all of them work that well mm-hmm. um some of them do much better than others mm-hmm. uh we still don't have a great artificial heart for example and, right but but we're working on it right so all of those include information technology they're not just uh you know they're not just mechanical organisms Right. It's the way everything works now is through right. those things. And that means that they also have the capacity, if not to be hacked in the sense of changing their function. Because, I mean, 
under what circumstances do you really want to change someone's liver function? I mean, right. but if someone has a left ventricular assist device and you can disrupt it, they're dead. Right. Right. So um, that might be something you want to do if there's a politician with an LVAD and you can, right. you know, zap them electronically instead of putting a bullet in them. Right. So right. that is a concern. And people have talked about that. Right. But the real concern is we're just on the very, very beginning of brain prosthetics. Mm. And there you're talking about something else. There you're talking about putting chips of various kinds into people's brains. And of course, at the beginning, we're talking about really to help them overcome usually some injury. So some very early work was done on the uh, hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that turns uh, short-term memories into long-term memories. You know, all these uh, movies about you know, uh, what was it called? Memory or Memorial? They've moved about the guy who can't remember, who right. only has short-term memory. Or oh, yeah. My 51st Dates, which was a comedy yeah. about yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing. Well, that's a hippocampal injury. Memorandum was Memorandum, the thank yeah. you. Uh, that's, a, that's a hippocampal injury. You can't, the, the, the uh, data goes in, but it can't come out the other side as a long-term memory. Right. Well, they were, they were trying to see, can we create a, a chip that would take the information that goes into the hippocampus, bypass the lesion or whatever, problem is and then inject it sort of back into the hippocampus on the other side and they tried it with mice and things so they're trying to create various kinds of prosthetics for the brain for people with brain injuries and we're all for that in theory but it raises all kinds of interesting at least theoretical problems doesn't it if there is artificial technology that becomes part of my cognitive processes right Who's responsible when I make a mistake or do something wrong? And, and are what? you still a human? And right. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, this is the this is the problem of the cyborg, which is cyborg cyborgism is itself a whole area of writing now too. Right. We are all becoming cyborgs because these technologies are in more not brain prosthetics. We're right. not quite there yet, but these other kinds of prosthetics are in more and more and more people, and that doesn't even. Um, include things like more sophisticated psychotropic medications that can micromanage mood and cognitive function and attention-enhancing drugs and all of those right. kinds of things, you know, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that can control sexual desire and sexual performance. I mean, we're getting better and better at creating chemical ways of micromanaging our cognitive states, our emotional states, and our physical functioning all of which is, I mean, this is just going to increase. It's not going to decrease over right. time. It'll increase. So the question of when does a human become something other, um, how much technology gets in us before we're, um, you know, have crossed over some line of acceptability, I mean, that is also a very um, difficult and ongoing conversation happening in the, in the world. We, we, I know we got to wrap it yeah. up, but here's, I got two quick thoughts and then I, uh, my, I guess my question. So I'm going to tell you how I want you to end it is <laughs> as your students leave your classroom and you don't want them like mm -hmm. screaming from the university and going by, you know, uh, uh, hiding in the hills of Tennessee from technology, how do you leave them with um, an idea of optimism yeah. and whatever? But my, my Two big thoughts are one was without time really I'm sure to dive into today but one is the uh, Lampere eel I believe it was there's yeah. this fully suspended brain and when I I saw that I rec I realized probably we're a great distance away but how long until 
it's a human brain in there, suspended in that, and fully aware of its environment and tied into a neural network or the Borg or whatever, yeah. you know, and um, and can it have a full life? And what does that look like? I mean, at the end of it, the day, you know, back to our science fiction novels, so much is, um, you know, it's our brain. If we're able to transfer consciousness into silicon and whatever, and I, I feel like that's been one of the human things that we've been trying to do since we've had cave writing. Mm -hmm. How do I avoid death? How do I, quote unquote, live forever? How do I have happiness and pleasure? How do I avoid pain and these other things? And we don't know what the unintended consequences of all of that, mm -hmm. but that's a, you know, eat of this tree. Right. You will be like the most high, you know, and we chase these things because we want to avoid, but we don't know if it's to our detriment or yeah. whatever. When you think about that, those sort of juxtapositions, here, students, I want you to be enthusiastic and go into the world and find a way to help make it better in spite of these things. And what are, you know, there's these unintentional consequences, um, regardless of our noble motives. How do you process that? Well, there's so many different, I mean, that's such a complex question. We could have discussed just that the whole time. <laughs> but let me just say a couple of things. First, technology is always both better and worse than people think it is. Yeah. And its promise is always greater and lesser than people think it is. Sure. People both greatly overestimate what AI can do. Mm. You know, uh, AI still, almost all of it right now, just does the one thing it is meant to do. Right. Right. The greatest chess program in the world, a three-year-old could beat at checkers. Right. Um, so, so there's that. You know, we always imagine this generalized right. thing when really we're talking about very specific things. Right. So, that, so that's the first thing. We overestimate and underestimate technology. The second thing is um, all predictions are wrong. This is my problem with the singularity and yeah. some of these that's other That's what Patrick Allitt says as right. well. All predictions are wrong. I mean, you look back at, you know, the early 20th century or, you know, I went to uh, Expo 67. I was 10 years old. This was the New York's World Fair. Right. And they had a future exhibit of what life was going to be like in the future. I don't think they got one thing right. right. Um, you don't have your nuclear power vacuum? Yeah, I know. And, you know, they <laughs> thought the telephone was going to be the first thing with a video screen where people would talk. When it was computers, I mean, right. they, they didn't even think about computers, right? Right. So, um, you know, all of that's wrong. Right. I don't know what's right, right. but all of that's wrong. Um, and the, But the most important point, the point you made about, you know, the fear of the future, what we forget is that all of these technologies are there because human beings think they're going to be a demand for them, mm -hmm. and when they create them, there either is or there isn't. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, they're spectacular. They're, there's lots of Google glasses right. that, you know, that Google thought everybody would be wearing by right. now and nobody is wearing by now right. except for three stubborn guys. <laughs> um, so we ultimately control things. And then if we push hard enough, things change. I mean, look at what happened with privacy. Apple finally said, no, you know, we're getting too much pushback from the public. We're going to change the whole nature of privacy. Mm. And then Facebook had to follow in suit and everything mm -hmm. else because Apple said stop. So, you know, we human being, I mean, the average person has more power than they think. The question is, are they willing to use it for the things that are important to them mm. or not? 
Um, I remember uh, this big argument that I don't remember what year it was, probably back in the 80s, maybe, maybe 90s, uh, around Microsoft. Because at the time, the argument was Bill Gates is going to be forever the most powerful person in the world. Microsoft is going to take over the world. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we're going to live under the dictatorship of Gates. Right. And government started talking about breaking Microsoft <clears throat> up and all that. And Bill Gates said, you guys don't get technology. Right. Ten years from now, someone else is going to be Microsoft. Right. And then someone else is going to be Microsoft if that. We're right. just the, you know, we're just the giant of the moment. He right. didn't say it like that. But right. That's what he said. And he, of course, was right. right. Not that Microsoft is small now. Right. But, you know. Technology changes, priority changes, technologies that look like they were the coming thing disappear, never having done anything. Right. Our, my baccalaureate speaker, um, the year I graduated, I think it was 1978 because I, I um, stayed an extra year because I took time off. So I'm not sure if it was my 78 or 79, mm -hmm. but was Herbert Simon, the quote unquote father of artificial intelligence. Okay. He said, Within 10 years, and he made these predictions of what AI was going to be doing within 10 years, which it still can't do today, right? Right. Um, 40 years or 50 years later, however many years it's been. So we worry about these things, um, and we should. Mm -hmm. the, the potential for terrible things is there, and it's great. Mm -hmm. But actually, what I say to my students is, it's your responsibility. This is your world. This is your. These are your technologies. These are technologies you'll either use or not use, or buy or not buy, right. and you have the responsibility of monitoring them and making sure that the companies and governments that use them use them responsibly. Right. Well, it turned out a vaccine faster than at any time in the history mm -hmm. of the world, and somebody was. I can't remember the exact conversation, but complaining about tech a little bit. And I said, it is true when we invented the airplane, we invented also the airplane crash. However, you want to cross the country by covered wagon and go through the Donner Pass? Right. I don't I don't think so. Right. And it seems to me, at least for the near future, that it's just like on an airplane. It's that combination. That plane can fly itself, take off, land, react, and yet we have pilots in there. Right. And it's and it's that hybrid that at least, whether it's real or imaginary, brings us the greatest peace. And, um, uh, you know, I don't want a pilot flying a modern jet without tech, and I don't want the tech doing it without a person in there. Right. So, Dr. Wolpe, thank you for very much for coming on today. It's My a great, pleasure. great, great. I cannot wait to have you back. Um, probably with a couple of chairs. But, uh, <laughs> Anytime. Th thank you so much for coming on. And if you've enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time on the Future of